Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. It's a weekly show about politics. I'm Marcus Molitzis. I am here with Kerry Alaveld. And this week, we are going to be talking about Ukraine. It is the one-year anniversary, almost. And by the time you're listening to this, it might actually be the one-year anniversary of Russia's illegal and immoral invasion of, of, uh, of Ukraine. Also, February 24th, that will be one year. Yes, February 24th. Also, Joe Biden just made a historic visit to both Ukraine and Poland, and we'll be talking about that. And, you know, uh, Carrie, last week I was interviewing you because <laughs> we were talking we were talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, Democrats being more aggressive and Republicans being a total shit show in Congress. And this is what you cover. And, and so I think today the tables are going to be a little reversed and you're going to be ta- you're going to be interviewing me. So this is going to be kind of fun how we can play off of each other's strengths and uh, areas of expertise. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. Should yeah. I go? Should I take it away then? You is that my are cue? the boss. You are today's well, boss. I just want to. Okay. Uh, you, I, you still have to watch the time because you know me. I'll go over <laughs> if I can. I'll go over. I got things to say, man. We got to get we got to say things. Um, so anyway, I apologize, first of all, to all of those who listened to me yammer last week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it is mostly uh, Marcos's day to day. I do want to step back for a second and just, you know, I, I'm not so sure. Like, I hadn't been thinking about this. My head isn't wrapped around this as much. It's not in the middle of this as much as Marcos's head is because, you know, he's been he and Mark have been doing all of our Ukraine coverage, which, by Mark the way, Sumner, has who's brought, one of our. Yeah, Mark Sumner. Yeah, Mark Sumner. Senior writers at Daily Coast. Front yes. front page writer at Daily Coast. And um, which, by the way, has brought in a, a, a new readership. There's a lot of people who are reading uh, Mark and uh, and Marcos, who don't who haven't necessarily been readers before of Daily Coast, specifically for their UK, Ukraine coverage, because they have been generally speaking ahead of the curve on most of the strategic analysis of what's going on. Um, that's partly due to Marcos's uh, training, his his time in the military, his understanding of logistics, his ability to sort of like make that accessible to average people rather than talking in complete you know, military speak. Um, but I, I I was off when the invasion happened and I was like, what are all these mainstream reporters talking about? Marcos and, and Mark have this like nailed down. Um, so we have this whole sort of um, separate readership that's been brought in. I do want to say for those who haven't been paying close attention that this This has it's been brought home to me as I've been listening to the coverage around Biden's visit there and whatever that we're definitely seeing a change in the global order now. I mean, I know that that was something people kind of talked about. Uh, last year, but it's really clear now what's on the line with Ukraine holding the line against uh, a an aggressor that you know made in you know, Ru- Russia, which invaded um, through no provocation of Ukraine, um, trying to have its way with Ukraine simply because it was bigger, it had a bigger military, it thought it could just sweep right in, and we're not we're no longer in the Cold War era anymore. So I think it's important for. Uh, for Americans who are almost 
hyper-focused all the time on domestic issues to realize that we do have to look outward a little bit more because it's important to what's going on here at home and the stability of, of America, of the Republic here at home, is now dependent and linked to what's going on abroad. So anyway, that was just my opening feature. So, so Marcos, as you think about the past year, what stands out to you as sort of um, one of the biggest milestones, some of the biggest milestones along the way in the war? When the yeah. war first began, there was sort of an expectation that Russia, you know, they self-styled themselves as the world's second army, second only to the United States, obviously, right? And and, and there was all sorts of stories in a lot of the sort of military press where they were um, uh, talking about how this Russian juggernaut, like all this equipment and all this modern weaponry and how they had reformed themselves since the Soviet era to become this incredibly effective fighting force and how it would steamroll the much smaller, lesser equipped Ukraine. Now, we all remember Ukraine's, you know, um, Donald Trump, people don't, did people forget this or they never even realized that he was impeached the first time for trying to extort Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, into making up a fake investigation of Hunter Biden. And he held up anti-tank uh, missiles as uh, as a hostage until he got that fake investigation. Right. So that's that's why he was impeached the first time. So Ukraine's been desperately trying to build up its uh, its defense capabilities over the last decade. I mean, the war really began. I mean, we say that one year anniversary, the war really began in 2014. That's when Russia invaded the eastern part of, of Ukraine. And and so there's this expectation that, OK, Russia is going to sweep in and oh, crap, it's going to be like maybe like Afghanistan. You know, the U.S. pulled out and, you know, 27 minutes later, the government had collapsed and the Taliban were in full control of the country. So there was sort of like, is it going to be one of those situations? And I guess the biggest surprise wasn't just that that Ukraine survived, but just how bad Russia has been in 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 carrying out this uh, this war. I mean, obviously, Russia is the source of the Potemkin village, right? The the famous fake village, and they had a Potemkin army. It did not exist. All this, these modern weapon weapons did not exist. They never showed up at the battlefield. They did not have anything approaching any kind of real integrated, uh, effective tactics. It was just, they just throw stuff, you know, at the beginning of the war, they would throw tanks. Now they throw human bodies. I mean, there's no sense of strategy or tactics. It's all head on assaults. It's, it's, uh, it almost seemed like, it almost seemed like Putin didn't know how bad his army was. Is that true? Oh, I absolutely don't think he knew there was a, I mean, down to the this idea of a, a battalion tactical group. That's their organizing principle. And it's it's 800 to 1,000 men in a battalion tactical group. And it's supposed to be self-contained. And in a regiment, there are three battalion tactical groups. The way the Russian generals did it is that they would field one, like, full-strength battalion, you know, BTG, battalion tactical group. The other two, they just pilfered. Like they existed in paper, but they they whatever money was supposed to go to soldiers ended up in the you know in the general's pocket. The equipment got sold off. I mean, it, they did not exist, right? So there was this army that's it's a million strong army, 
it did not exist. Maybe a third of it existed. And even that third was selling off its equipment and even the, the graft and corruption and greed really hollowed out its military from the inside. They're supposed to have a modern Air Force. It literally has never shown up in a battlefield. Now, the flight planes behind you know Russian territory and the lob rockets and missiles from far away but they don't actually do what's called close air support where you have the planes flying over the troops to support them in any in an attack or a defense because they'll get shot down. They don't even have the faith and the ability to suppress air defenses. So it's it's the that's been sort of the surprise. It's, from the very beginning, I expected them to not be good. I mean, I, I have my writing, you know, early on saying like what it, people think Russia is, it never has been. They've never proven the ability to be effective at anything because of that corruption. And now, uh, now they've, now they've actually disproven that ability. I mean, like we've <laughs> gone from never proved to actually proving to be disabled. <laughs> it, it's one of those where you're like, it's better to shut up and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and be proven to be one. Right. It's like, it's one of those. It's at least there was a, 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 you know, a deterrent and people thinking like, okay, we don't think they're that bad, but, they're that effective, but what if they are? <laughs> you know, so, like let's let's not go there. Let's let's give wide berth. And it's actually what allowed Russia to invade Crimea in 2014 and illegally annex it, and the country of Georgia in in Central Asia, and uh, Armenia, and uh, ah, there's one more. Uh, but they they they've invaded several countries, you know, in their periphery non-NATO countries, as they try to recreate, Putin's been trying to recreate the Soviet Union. That that to him is the biggest, literally he said it, it's the biggest travesty in like world history is the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he's been trying to recreate that. And that's what Ukraine has been all about. It's about rebuilding that that Soviet Union. And and thing is that that the the Ukraine didn't stop. And I think a big part of that is is Zelensky and his leadership. And on day two of the of the invasion, there's a story that he was asked to the the Americans offered to give him a helicopter ride to safety, and he responded, "I don't need an you know I don't need a ride. I need ammunition." Now there's no video of it. There's no real evidence of it. It might not even have happened. The only source is an AP story that credited to an intelligence officer that heard it from somebody else, but. It was such good optics, you know, as far as building a legend that everybody, you know, pro-Ukrainian side jumped on it right away and made it real. And of course, the Ukrainians adopted it. It's like, yeah, that really happened. We actually don't even know if it happened. There's no evidence that it did. But that was an incredibly powerful rallying cry that, that brought the, the, the country together. The other piece is yeah. you want to talk about what Putin knew and what he didn't know. He, was, he spent about a couple billion dollars. I think two billion is a, is a number that's, that's thrown out. Paying bribes to key officials in the Ukrainian government and military. And so there was an expectation that half of the Ukrainian army would defect to the Russian side when they crossed the border. So what that meant is that Russia did not attack troop con concentra uh, concentrations at the start of the war. They didn't attack barracks. They didn't attack uh, troops in the field because they fully expected to be welcomed as, as conquerors. The only place it worked was in the city of Kherson in the south, where the mayor and the security apparatus sold out the city to, to, the, to the Russians. And it took 10 months to, to liberate it. But uh, everywhere else, it absolutely failed. So the Ukrainians were taking his Russian money. <laughs> and right. then they laughed and spit in their face then, when they actually right. crossed over. 
Well, no nicer person was deserving of that than Putin. Let me just say one quick word about Russia and then um, let's fast forward up to speed on Biden's visit, because it truly was, I think, what our writer uh, Hunter, you know, at Daily Coast, front page writer, called it a, a political masterstroke or whatever, something like that. And it totally was a diplomatic masterstroke. Um, and of course, Republicans are losing their mind over it. Um, but before we get there, let me just say one other thing. Putin's Russia is now different than when he invaded. At least it it doesn't have the veneer anymore of being this place that is kind of has some, you know, front of de- of being a democracy. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't really a democracy, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. he, he he would he would do in everyone who might actually be a real opposition leader to him. He wouldn't let them run. He rigged the he actually li- really rigged the elections, not fake rigged the elections, um, you know, th- this type of thing. But now what you have. And I've just been listening to reports today, you know, um, uh, I think Julia Inoff and I I'm not might not be saying her name correctly, but she is a Russian born American journalist. She still has family there. She has a lot of connections. And at the outside of the war, we did see some um, we did see some anti-war protests by Russians. Um, You don't see that anymore. And essentially what happens is there's been so much of a crackdown on the anti-war protesters um, that and uh, and Russians have started to like spy on each other. I mean, this is such a classic totalitarian regime now where if they get the if they think their neighbor is collaborating with Ukraine, the Ukrainians, you know, they'll they'll go ahead and, and just rat them out to the to the um, government and they'll come and arrest them. You know, I mean, this is like classic totalitarian regime. They're spying on each other. Everyone's scared. So the people who are actually anti-war have either shut up because they're too scared, they've been jailed, or they've actually managed to flee the country. And Putin has actually completely crushed that resistance. And now you have, you know, every bit of the totalitarian regime that he always wanted to have. Um, No one is going to call that place a democracy anymore. Not even there's not hints of a democracy um, so it, that place has changed. Now, let's I just wanted to people to have an idea. So because we're going to talk in a second about also Republicans who, you know, are wanting to are, are you know, pro they're Russian happy. They're pro Russia. They're pro Putin. Um, not all of them. There's a split in the party to some extent. But um, but I just want people to know what they're talking about when they're saying, oh, Russia's not so bad and they're not our enemy. If you ever lived in a state like that, you would you would you would cry every day that you woke up. I mean, I would personally. So anyway, well, you um, especially because their LGBT record is actually not just uh, atrocious, but it's actually used as one of the excuses for the war that the war that the west is trying to impose these liberal values like tolerance for gay people on orthodox russians and they are the are the defenders of faith and family and god and righteous moral values where the man is in charge and the women and so does that, th- does that yeah. remind you of anything marcos does that remind you of anything there that, that is, thinking that it- <laughs> there is a direct line between that ideology and that rhetoric and the MAGA right support for Putin. And it's actually on purpose. I mean, you see him make some of these speeches and 
he is speaking directly to American and European, you know, the, the, they, they got their own version of our MAGA. Uh, he's speaking to that ultra nationalist, racist, homophobic right directly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so that's why they think they're making common cause. And they also okay. all hate democracy. I mean, that, right. Exactly. Well, so now that so before we go down that rabbit hole, because we are going to get into Republicans, let's talk about President Biden going to i'm sorry i was just going to russia punching putin (laughs) in the face (laughs) on national on international television no okay sorry that didn't happen that's just a that's just a a fantasy um no going going to kiev right um the sirens blaring as he walks in kiev in the open streets uh with uh uh president Zelensky, ukrainian president Zelensky. Um, he took like a, I don't know, 10 hour, 12 hour uh, ride on a train there in order to get oh. there because you can't fly into Kiev. I mean, it is it is a logistical nightmare from a standpoint of getting a U.S. president into an active war zone. OK, you go ahead, Marcos. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, I would I would argue that he did punch Vladimir Putin in the face because the U.S. told Russia that Biden was going to be in Kiev and dared him to do something about it. And Russia literally couldn't do anything about it. So uh, in a lot of ways, that was an even bigger humiliation. They weren't asking for permission. They were saying, we're going to be there. <laughs> Don't start anything. So the, the, the train, there's, there's two sort of um, big, um, uh, you know, little facts about that, that train ride. One is that this is the first time ever in American history that an American president has gone to a war zone that isn't occupied by American troops. It took some serious guts to the point where some conservatives were even complaining that that it was too risky like it was too brave it was too gutsy and um it was the right call um i don't think he could have done anything else but it also you know we, we talked last week about the state of the union address or maybe it was the week before and and, and how biden showed vigor and strength you know and it really combats that narrative that he's senile and old and too old this also from a domestic perspective having biden walk waltz into a into a active war zone with those air raid sirens blaring which was a nice touch I, I'm, I'm still not convinced they were real i think they might have been a touch of theatrics but they were perfect it was perfect and that train ride it was probably the first the other little fact it's probably the the longest train ride an american president has taken since what like Teddy Roosevelt, maybe, <laughs> I mean, like way, way like over a hundred years. It was a, so you can't fly in obviously because uh, anything that flies could get shot down. So it's a 10 hour ride from Poland to Kiev. All the world leaders take this, which is now kind of a famous train car. And uh, it's a 10 hour ride there, a 10 hour ride back. So he was in that train for 20 hours he was in Kiev itself for four hours, which is actually an impressively long amount of time because um, he could have gone in, photo-opted and gotten the hell out, but, but he lingered. And um, it really sent probably what, what might be the worst news that Putin can, could have gotten in this juncture at the one-year anniversary, which is that the U.S. is, is there to stay. And we are just now ramping up production of, of artillery shells and other weapons that are being consumed at just uh, unbelievable amounts in this war. And Wars, any word, very hungry. Any word, 
Any word on F-16s yet? Because I know that that's something that uh, Ukraine has been pushing for, uh, Zelensky has been pushing for. Um, and I know that the DOD, uh, Department of Defense, just put out a list of things and they didn't say anything definitive about F-16s and whether or not the planes, these are fighter planes. Um, yeah, what- the, the um, no, not, nothing, nothing public. There's all sorts of new reporting coming out as we record us that are saying that the U.S. position is softening. I actually don't think F-16s are a game changer, and that's a whole other episode. There, there's mm. uh, in one of the recent days that we're going to we're going to wait. We're going to do the F-16 episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no. know, two weeks the, from now. No, I'm just kidding. The only reason, the only part of the Russian war machine that seems to actually work well is their is their anti-air missiles. They actually work well, which is the reason. That's what. Ukraine has. It's a reason Russian aircraft can't fly over Ukraine because Russia, I mean, Ukraine has those uh, Soviet era anti-air missiles. And it makes sense because NATO projects its power via air. And, and it's, it's from a doctrinal standpoint, it makes sense that Russia would build its best defenses around combating air power. So, but I'm not saying don't send F-16s. I'm saying send everything. I just don't think it's a be all end all. What, what would be more important to things like cruise missiles, the ability to hit Russian supply depots well behind enemy lines because Russia has a hard time supplying its forces with the food, ammo, water, ammunition, spare parts, lubricants, all the things that make a war machine move. It has a really hard time supplying them if there's no rail line. It can supply stuff by train, cannot supply it by truck. So anytime you push out, like you you destroy rail hubs further behind enemy lines, it makes those supply issues even worse for Russia. So that's what I'd like to see. There's Again, there's hints that that Biden may have been softening. And quite frankly, I have a hard time believing he would go all the way to Kiev without actually bringing something of substance as a as a present. Well, they also they they announced uh, more uh, funding there just just so that we have a a hold a handle on the funding. And we looked this up just before we came on. Um, So far, the U.S. has spent um, somewhere north of one hundred billion dollars and about, you know, two thirds of that has been uh, allocated towards defense needs. And the remaining two fifths has been uh, non-defense concerns such as government aid, economic support, refugee resettlement, things like that. Um, but about 120, $112 billion so far. Um, did he, do you remember what exactly what he announced? He announced that there was going to be another package of funding coming. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was just, a, it was a road half a billion dollars in ammunition, which okay. that there's no way he's going to, to Kiev to announce that we're sending you more artillery shells. Right. Ukraine desperately needs <laughs> Here's it. Here's some bullets. <laughs> Ukraine <laughs> desperately needs them, so it's not yeah. a bad thing. But that's not that's not what U- Ukraine is looking for. Ukraine's looking for long ter- long range missiles. They're looking for F 16s and so hopefully there was movement on that front. Hey, hey, Marcos. Just so we know, do you have a basic on how many Russians have, or even Russian mercenaries have died so far versus how many um, how many Ukrainians have died? I know these numbers are really hard to come by, but do we have a basic comparison there? Yeah, the, the the estimates are, I mean, as you can imagine, they're all over the place and there's no actual definitive count. But it roughly, you know, if, if I were to aggregate all the sources and sort of find the middle point, the middle point would be about 100,000 Russian dead and about maybe twice as many wounded. And for the Ukrainian side, about half of that. So about fifty to 60,000 dead 
um, not including civilians. We do right. know that the UN has uh, cataloged about 18,000 civilians killed. And that does not include places like uh, Mariupol, which is Russian occupied. And so they have no visibility. But we know from satellite images that there are just vast fields of, uh, of mass graves. So I'm sure the numbers there will be in the thousands as well. So that's where I, I mean, the, oh. the, the death toll is, is easily the, you know, it's among the most deadly wars of, um, you know, in the last half century, for sure. And, and, and part of what, by, by consolidating his power, Putin, part of what he's been able to do is just not give really a flying, you know, F-U-C-K about how many people get killed in this war he kills in this war that he chose to go into it's, i mean stalin has this famous quote where he was talking about quantity has a quality all its own in other words quantity of people that you throw at a war has a quality all its own and that putin has essentially adopted that if not actually repeated it um so there, he's just gonna he's ready as far as i can tell um to just keep throwing Russians and and mercenaries um, into that battle, just keep on throwing, you know. It is, it is, I don't know, if, if anybody has seen, um, what was the name of the movie? It was, it was, uh, it was about the two snipers in Stalingrad, uh, Enemy at the Gate, Enemies at the mm. Gate. If you ever see that movie, at the beginning of the, of the movie, there's a scene where it's basically, it's, it's Soviet mass attacks against a German machine gun position. And they don't even have enough rifles for for everybody so they basically say they give one rifle to a guy and they line up four people behind them and they say rush it when the guy in front of you falls pick up the rifle keep charging jesus and and you think that can't be real it was real right it was basically they pushed out the germans by having them run out of ammunition by throwing bodies and and that was fine russia had a lot of bodies at that time the fact that they're doing it now at a time when Russia faces a demographic bomb where, where their birth rates are in the, in the, you know, in the gutter, they're actually losing people is, is absolutely incredible. And so what they're doing now, they, they've run out of tanks, mostly of tanks and armored vehicles. So what they're doing is a modification of that, you know, World War II tactic where they'll send teams of eight and the first team will carry a bunch of ammunition and then they'll get as far as they can until they're gunned down. The next team can come up without the ammunition so they can move quicker and then you start digging, right? And so you try to set up that position and eventually they'll get gunned down and then the next team and they'll line up these teams of eight and they'll just keep coming and coming and coming. And so it has one, it has the effect of starting to really take a toll on ammunition on the Ukrainian side, but it also takes a toll on their psyche. I mean, can you imagine sitting in a, in a trench just mowing down wave after wave after wave of Russians. I mean, eventually it's kind of really fuck with your head and it's exactly what it's going to be doing. And I can't even imagine the kind of PTSD issues that, that uh, Ukraine's going to have. I mean, obviously Russia too, but it's, that's their fault. You know, Ukraine, it's not their fault. The, the issues they're going to have in dealing with, it's going to be a massive mental health uh, challenge after the war. And so it's effective in moving the front lines but it's only moving them at a rate of like a couple dozen meters a day, you know. So in, in and around the, the uh, west of, of – because the war originally began in four different corners of, of Ukraine. Systematically, Ukraine pushed out Russia out of all of three of them, and now they're down to one, which is the east. And on that front, um, Russia has moved maybe in the last eight months, they maybe maybe have moved about five kilometers, five, 10 kilometers in, in various directions. I mean, it is in some areas they haven't moved at all. 
And so it's not sustainable. I know Putin wanted a big victory for his speech on the anniversary of the war. He's, 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 there's no big victory to be had. Yeah, instead and, he got this split screen with Biden declaring that the West was strong and gonna and Ukraine was standing tall and strong and proud and free. Um, you know, it, it, making that the split screen was was Biden making his speech and Putin being like, yeah, I'm feeding you guys all into the wood chipper. It's great. And Putin, Putin's speech, he was you know, he had all his dignitaries. They were about three miles from the stage, too. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious because he's so afraid of being assassinated that he won't have anybody come anywhere near him. And so even his own dignitaries were about, you know, were good 100 feet away from the stage and then you have to talk about split screens you know you have you have biden strolling with Zelensky through downtown Kiev, and they're doing the same thing in poland because he he had a he had a barn burner speech in poland uh yeah. what was it tuesday night where he he talked about you know defending the the values of democracy and and the rules-based order and it was actually kind of amazing that, that split screen. <clears throat> and if you look at Putin's audience, they're like literally yawning. One guy's falling asleep. I mean, those guys are probably get thrown out the window. That's how say, they treat. <laughs> there's going to be a tragic window accident in, their, in and, the near future. And in Poland and, you know, and in, in Ukraine, people are ecstatic over Biden. And, and this has driven conservatives absolutely nuts, right? Those okay. the images. Perfect segue uh, to spend the last part of this on what's happening here at home, how this is affecting the um, how this is affecting Republicans and um, and and how how Democrats need to think about messaging this. But first of all, let's first go to Republicans. How have they responded and what's the split in the party? Because I just want to remind people it's it's not perfect here. It's not there's not just all Republicans are one way. It's most Republicans are one way. And but you had Mitch McConnell, for instance, making a you know, another effort to look like he was walking sort of beside Biden. I mean, not in Ukraine, literally, and not in Poland, literally. But, you know, in terms of he went to the um, what was the uh, the Munich, the Munich uh, um, security conference. Yeah. Security conference. And he and he said, you know, you hear all this stuff about some Republicans not supporting the Ukraine effort, U.S. being in Ukraine. But just look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Um, Okay, well, that, you know, he he wants he wants his conference to seem sane, to seem to be on the pro-democracy side. Uh, But meanwhile, you know, Kevin McCarthy, his House counterpart, um, has basically said, look, there's not going to be a blank check to Ukraine anymore once we take control. And I'm not sure exactly even where we stand right now. Can you bring us up to speed on sort of where the House conferences and where some where some of the big presidential candidates stand? Because, you know, I mean, uh, Donald Trump, just to start with him, wants to basically give away the game to Putin. Yeah. Let him, you know, he under the auspices of peace is like, why don't we just let Putin have what he wants and then we can call it quits on the war. I mean, that's what that's what Donald Trump is saying. Yeah. No, it's been an absolutely fascinating um, dynamic scene. Sort of the old Cold War warriors like Mitch McConnell and uh, Lindsey Graham is is on that on that side of things. Uh, And then sort of the MAGA. Right. So Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and and Louis Gohmert and and all that that crazy caucus like they 
are absolutely losing their mind. In fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene like broke. Like now she wants a secession. You know, she wants to secede the blue states and the red states should break apart because we're giving money to Ukraine and not not Ohio, not 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 the trail derailment, you know, derailment, which was a well, Republican Ohio state is going to get money. <laughs> Ohio is going to get money. Yeah, the federal government has already had just set, announced today that they were going to go in and start doing the cleanup. So Ohio is getting money, by the way, yeah. for that derailment. I'm not and nothing against. I mean, you know, they, they the people in in East Palestine, they need they need the funding and um, they'll get it. So anyway, go ahead. The, yeah. So it's been fascinating because for Republicans, they, they built this entire narrative that that Joe Biden is bumbling idiot who's who's, you know, losing his mind and he's he's senile. And from the Zelensky visit to the Capitol, which was incredibly widely received and actually was one of the top 10 most viewed ratings wise non-sporting events, uh, live events of last year of 2022 it was a top 10 then you have uh you know the state of the union address and then now you have this trip i mean biden's looking pretty statesman-like and really on he's on his a game i mean it's it's clearly he's on top of his game the world is absolutely like ecstatic europe is treating him like like a like a you know white knight savior for what the U.S. is doing for ukraine because you know europe is doing its part and nobody denies it but Without the United States, it's a whole different picture. And we are, unfortunately, the arsenal of democracy. And as one really funny meme, funny, because, you know, sad funny, you know, not haha funny, that basically had like an American eagle and said, Russia's about to find out why we don't have universal health care. So it is what it is. And um, for reasons that, you know, aren't great, like we are clearly still the gu- guarantors of peace in places like Europe and in uh, in Asia as well. You know, if you're looking at Taiwan and South Korea and uh, tensions in both those areas. So it's it's you have the split where you have the 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 MAGA right who wants to one day want to knock down Biden just because no matter what he does, if he didn't go, if he went to East Palestine, like they would rag on him. If he didn't go, they would rag on him. Like it don't matter what he does, right? They're going to, they're going to find a reason to be outraged and, and, you know, we need to pass in the smelling salts, but then you have the cold war warriors who are like, no, like we're going to, we're going to keep, we're going to keep supporting them. And so where we are right now is that funding has been secured through September, through the fiscal year. So we're, we're okay and there's plenty of money to keep funding um, Ukraine for now. It's going to be interesting, though, in September, given the presidential race and Donald Trump's going to be doing his thing. Yet Nikki Haley announced and nobody's taking her seriously, although, you know, they're pretending to, I guess. But she's very much in, in the give Ukraine everything it needs to win this. It's important for all the all the reasons that we know. And then there's Ron DeSantis, who I'm not sure where he stands. He, he seems to try to I be. I don't think Ron DeSantis knows where he stands. He, he, I think he's, he's, he's probably doing a lot of polling right now. Is yeah. what he's doing. He, he's, you know, he tries to say, oh, Russia bad, but, you know, oh, but maybe we shouldn't be spending all the money and oh, we should find peace. And nobody's saying let's not find peace. But we know that peace isn't letting Russia hold on to the territory it, it illegally occupies. That's not right. that's not peace. It just and rewards a- Russia. Right. And, keep doing it, they have been. and it's a hundred percent non-starter with Ukraine, which has anyway, been, you know, yeah. which has been, you know, putting 
blood, sweat and tears into defending their country so that they can self-determine what kind of what kind of government they want to be, what kind of country they want to be. Exactly. So to, to protect its residents every time they sure. live in an area, they're finding mass graves and torture and, and murder and yeah. rape. I mean, this is not a question of, you know, benevolent, you know, outside power taking control. I mean, they are murderous tyrants. That's the yeah. problem. Yeah. And any, anybody who knows you know, the history, like you listen to Masha Gessen or whatever, who's now an uh, American journalist, but Russian born um, and what and actually reported on Putin in Russia for for a time. She'll just say this, you know, the barbaric, um, you know, stuff that we're seeing from their army, from the Russian army. They've been doing that for decades um, and under Putin. Uh, so yeah. it's you know, it's just that in Ukraine, we're actually uncovering it now in a way because there's more freedom of the press, there's more access, et cetera. Um, okay, so um, we know that Donald Trump would happily do whatever Putin wanted him to do. Is basically um, what that. I mean, he's down. he's not even hiding it at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's his plan. It's it's to give Putin what he wants. But this is going to this is going to royal the Republican Party because there's going to be people on all sides of this. Um, Mitch McConnell, we don't even know what Kevin McCarthy is capable of, like how how low he's capable of going. But it's pretty, pretty damn low. I mean, he's Um, afraid of the of the MAGA caucus. Right. So it's not it doesn't even matter what he believes. Who knows what he believes? No, he doesn't know what he believes. He doesn't care. He doesn't care, but he knows that, yeah, they need one of them to call for a vote of non-confidence and and he's in trouble. Right. Exactly. That tightrope. Right. So um, so, you know, this is it's this is going to be an issue that continues. And, you know, I I, did I did I go over I don't even remember at the beginning. Did I did did we go over the sort of polling on this or did we just talk about that before? Uh, No, we did. We did not. Yeah. Okay. let me say let me say really quickly. uh, This is what happens to your brain when you have uh, constant lack of sleep really quickly that support for. Sending weapons um, to Ukraine from the U.S. has slipped a little bit from last year. So in May, this is an AP uh, Associated Press NORC poll just recently out. Um, it was 60 percent in May of 2022 support for sending weapons. Now it's down to 48 percent. So that's a, a double digit slip. Yeah. Um, th- there's uh, um, there is uh, but but there's 48 who do favor providing weapons and only 29% opposed. So there's 22% who are unsure, right? And that's a that's a 22% that we need to work and with. And I believe it. To, I, that's, a, right. that's a real unsure. It's not some of the, right. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. Really unsure about what we should be doing here. And so Democrats do need to focus on this. There's also um, the issue of government funding. So I was just talking about support for sending weapons. The support for funding um, is even a little bit less, which is there's 37 percent in favor of, of sending funding to Ukraine, 38 percent opposed, and once again, 23 percent unsure. So we've got nearly a quarter of the population of the American public that is like, I don't know exactly what to think about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, what do you think? Um, what do you think the argument is here that Democrats are going to have to make um, on, on this topic uh, going forward, Marcos? So, I mean, there's, there's, before I even get to that, I just also want to note that Fox news itself is all over the place. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson is, is Putin's favorite um mouthpiece and 
Tucker literally features nightly in Russian state propaganda. And they, they refer to him as America's most popular newscaster. And um, so, but then you look at Brian Kilmeade this morning, you know, like Tuesday morning was, was saying, we got to do, we got to send them everything. We got to send them everything. Right. So there's a real rift. And so I think I wonder how much of that undecided is actually their side being confused because they're used to having a very unitary message. It's not often that conservatives can't really come together and have that, uh, simple response. And, um, and part of it is because it's not, this is not an easy liberals are for it. In fact, it's even confused because liberals historically have been against higher Pentagon spending and arms shipments to other, uh, um, to other countries. And so even our side is in a bit of a, a weird place because, you know, Daily Coast began as an anti-war website, anti-imperialism um, when the U.S. was invading Iraq and Afghanistan. And here we are. Daily Coast is a huge supporter of this war. But again, I think that the common thread is that we're anti-imperialism. And, you know, there's a show that actually would be interesting, just how much of the world's ills really come down to imperialism in all its different forms. And so it's, it's to, you know, to me and to clearly to the Daily Coast readership, imperialism is bad if the U.S. does it. And it's also bad if Russia does it and if China does it. I mean, imperialism, bad. I mean, it's, this, is, this is very simple. But um, for, for, you know, Republicans, again, you know, for either ideological reasons, because they buy into the anti-LGBTQ agenda or they buy into the, the crypto-fascist, religious-fascist language or whatever it is, um, for for Democrats, I think it's we're in a really good place because one, you can actually play that bipartisan card, and it's actually real. This is not fake BS bipartisanship that we all roll our eyes in, and you know, this is actually legit. There are probably majorities, there are easily majorities in both chambers of Congress that are for aid. This is not an issue that theoretically should be partisanized, and I know that that Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson are going to do their best to make it a partisan issue. But this is where it's actually been important that somebody like Mitch McConnell and even Lindsey Graham, that they're saying, like, nah, no, we're not we're not going to allow this. And I don't know why anybody's paying attention to Nikki Haley, because she's going to get like one percent in the, <laughs> in the vote. That's what she has right now. She has like <laughs> no, two or three percent. Yeah, I don't know why anybody cares. But the fact that she's out there making supporting Ukraine actually part of her message is 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 incredibly helpful. So that's going to be a big part of it is once you strip out the partisan angle, then it becomes a question about about morality and values. And then that's when you can shift and saying that, you know, Democrats and Republicans agree that America is the arsenal of democracy. We, we are the guarantors of, of, of the rules based order. And this matters. This matters because um, war is, you know, for all the reasons, right? Inflation and higher energy prices and refugee flows. And, the, and if, the, you bow, if you bow to an aggressor like Putin, then it's just going to encourage him to do it again more and not, more. I mean, not just yeah. him, but if, if you're saying when somebody has nuclear weapons, they can waltz into any of their neighbors. What's stopping India from doing it? Right. What's stopping China from doing it? What's stopping right. China, any nuclear power? China wants to do that very same thing in Taiwan, and they are definitely watching how this plays out in in uh, with Russia to see what kind of world resistance you know there is, no. and 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 you know how how much uh, how strong that resistance is, and how durable. The weaker the response to Russia's invasion to Ukraine, the more likely that China invades Taiwan because they'll see it as a green light. If the consequences aren't absolute, 
they're going to see that as a green light. And if you think invading Ukraine has has created you know economic upheaval in the world, um, wait till Taiwan and China, uh, you know, those supply lines and microchips and all all the trade that comes from Asia is is it basically disappears overnight. It's going to be a whole lot of pain for for. For the United States, for the whole global economy, you know, but specifically, right. but specifically for us. So it actually matters. It's important for us to be able to say, like, this is going any kind of adventurism of this kind is going to cost. And so don't do it. Right. So so this is a good place to sort of wrap up. Um, you know, we started at the beginning, uh, you talking about how this really uncovered uh, Putin's and Russia's military for being, uh, you know, sort of the Potemkin village of, 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 uh, of militaries, right? Not nearly as strong as, as people thought they might be um, or were or were afraid they could be. Um, and, you know, Putin's standing on the world stage has undoubtedly weakened. And, uh, you know, uh, that didn't just happen that way. That, it didn't have to be that way. But President Biden did really an amazing job. And I think people don't a lot of people don't appreciate this. We appreciate it a lot. But a lot of Americans haven't fully appreciated how much work he did to quickly, you know, to warn Ukraine that this was going to happen. Even when Ukraine, U- Ukrainian leaders, including Zelensky, were saying, no, there's not going to be an invasion invasion. You know, the U.S. Is, was on top of this immediately. They publicized the the coming um, Intelligence, invasion yeah. early um, and uh, and started rallying the, uh, you know, the allies to support Ukraine. And the instead of the support getting less and less, the support support and the alliance has gotten stronger. And it is amazing that, you know, there's probably the two biggest uh, geopolitical enemies of uh, the U.S. are Russia and China. And without losing a single life, a single American life. OK, sorry, I just do not mean a single a single American life. Um, you know, Biden has managed by rallying a- allies together against this aggress- aggression to weaken one of uh, a considerably weaken on the world stage, one of America's uh, biggest opponents, uh, Russia. Yep. So that's really a total diplomatic masterstroke if there ever was one. And military. I mean, yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. 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 On the cheap. So and the other thing we're going to start doing, I think, you know, a, as we think about how um, the world is changing, how we have uh, Marcos and uh, Mark Sumner, their coverage has just gotten a whole new audience to sort of pay attention to daily coasts. We want the audiences who are taught, who are reading the domestic stuff and the audiences who are reading the international coverage, particularly the Ukraine coverage. We want them to all have a chance to see how great all the coverage really is. And so um, in order to, to bring that to both audiences, uh, we are going to start doing a feature the first Tuesday of every month, where we talk about Ukraine and the latest Ukrainian coverage um, so that the people who have been reading that coverage have a podcast to come to where they can hear Marcos, they can hear Mark, they can hear guests that they might have, they can hear me asking pedestrian questions, um, things like that. So, um, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I just want to say as, as we wrap up that there is nothing pedestrian about these questions. And in fact, I was just thinking about how much fun it's been being on the other side of journalist, journalist Carrie Elevelt asking all the questions. Because uh, usually we're, we're peppering somebody else with questions. And so to be on the receiving end, that was a total joy. And the questions were great. And so nothing pedestrian about it. In fact, it was, um, I think it was, um, you bring that perspective. I mean, it, it's clear I'm in the weeds. When you're in the weeds, you know, you need somebody to help pull pull you out of it. Uh, you're like, we could do a whole, we could do a whole episode on F-16s. And and, I, was, and, I actually don't think not. we can. I don't think we can. <laughs> After Absolutely the show, I'm going to be like, Marcos, we can't do that. We can't do that. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing that. Thank you, everybody. That's our show for this week. Thanks, Carrie, for being such a wonderful interviewer. That was a lot of fun. Thanks to everybody who helps the show happen behind the scenes. Kara, Walter, Dorothy, Paul. And thank you, the listener, viewer, and reader who are part of this movement to take back our democracy. And in this case, part of helping protect democracy on a global scale because it's absolutely critical for everything that we hold dear. So thank you so much for being part of that, of that, of that effort in that fight because we couldn't be there. We couldn't do it without you. So thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch you next week.